Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode five of the podcast. Once again, if you're watching this, we are in the wonderful, warm confines of my basement library. And this time there actually are libations. It's one of those Fridays. It's time. I welcome you here. And I want to talk to you today about something that I haven't talked about yet. In these early episodes, mostly I've been focusing on the powerful positive effect that fantasy literature can have on the human person. And even before I started this podcast, I did a short video video and audio series, uh, which you can get on my website, nicholaskotar.com, where I talk about the kinds of stories that we need uh, to unite us during dark times. And almost entirely those stories are stories that have positive effects on us. There are stories of heroism. There are stories generally um, of strong moral character. But it would be wrong of me to simply leave it at that. I need to talk about some of the negative effects that, yes, I'm going to say it, that bad fantasy can have on the human person as well. And here's where I do anticipate a bit of pushback. Uh, For some people, for some readers and some writers, just merely saying out loud that some stories are bad for you um, is an automatic red flag and uh, will probably get some people mad at me. And it's true, there is a lot of good criticism of fantasy, classic fantasy, coming from people of a more postmodern frame of mind. And to ignore their point of view completely would do a disservice not only to their arguments, but to my own. Because every time someone like George R.R. Martin tells you that high fantasy of the heroic romantic variety, such as The Lord of the Rings, is morally simplistic, could it be that he and the rest of his ilk are just trying to sell you a bill of goods? Well, that's what we'll be exploring today, or at least beginning to. I think it will take a bit of time to really do this idea justice. Today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. They are the backbone of my work. They inspire me. They keep me creating, even when I really don't feel like it, but with the world going crazy around us as it is. If you'd like to support this show, you can by joining for $2 a month to Patreon and getting access to early live-streamed recordings of this podcast, which include exclusive Q&A sessions afterwards. My Patreon community also has higher tiers that include things like free books, merch, and exclusive experimental short fiction written by yours truly. I also give occasional gifts, special gifts, to my patrons, including recently a few free audiobook codes for the complete Raven Sun series, books one through five, in audiobook. Visit patreon.com forward slash Nicholas Kotar to find out more. Now, on to today's show. I believe, and I'm not the only one, that fantasy and sci-fi, or 
rather speculative fiction in general, are the genres most suited for telling the difficult truths about our world and our society. That job used to be the exclusive domain of what we now call literary fiction. In the 19th century especially, realist fiction writers like George Eliot and Charles Dickens really created a serious societal change through their portrayals of the horrors of the Industrial Revolution. But literary fiction nowadays is often more obsessed with itself than it is with telling any sort of truths about the world. Here's an example. The Goldfinch, that sad, pathetic excuse for a Pulitzer Prize winner, is the perfect example. It's got gorgeous words, interesting characters, wonderful sentence structure, and absolutely no significance whatsoever. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. And recently I tried to force myself to reconsider this position, which I've um, talked about in other places at other times. This position that I don't think that realistic fiction nowadays is all that effective at producing real effective change, both within ourselves and in society. And I decided I would try out a book from another Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, Home by Marilyn Robinson. Now, Marilyn Robinson is highly recommended by pretty much anybody who loves literature, especially people who love literature of the 19th century variety. So I thought, okay, if anybody, if anybody could do a good job with a realistic fiction novel, it's got to be Marilyn Robinson. Well, I'm listening to the audiobook and I'm at 47% and I can't force myself to go forward. Because in the first half of the novel, which is a retelling of The Prodigal Son uh, in 19... Uh, late 1950s, early 1960s era, uh, Iowa, rural Iowa. It's almost not an exaggeration to say that the entire novel is two very depressing characters trying to talk to each other about how depressing they are. I realize there might be something very shocking to come in the second half of the novel, but I'm not sure that I can force myself to get to it. Now, on the, hand, on the other hand, look at the books of somebody like N.K. Jemisin. Her Broken Earth series is as incising a criticism of racism and slavery as anything realistic that you could read. Certainly something like the 1619 Project. And it'll be remembered as great literature far longer than the 1619 Project. Mark my words. Today's fantasy novels will be remembered in the same sentence 100 years from now as Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. That being said, there's something missing in a lot of fantasy novels these days. It has to do with a willful misunderstanding of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Some of you may be surprised, and I assume that most of you who are listening to this are lovers of Tolkien, but you may be surprised that many modern fantasy readers generally don't like Tolkien, although I suppose you won't be so surprised now as looking at the reaction that a lot of people are, a lot of people are having to the Rings of Power, uh, both on the right and on the left. But a lot of people object to the... Um, Moral simplicity, as they say, of Tolkien's vision. George R.R. R. Martin is the first among these. This is uh, quoted in an article in the American Spectator, where he says, The battle of good and evil is a great subject for any book, and certainly for a fantasy book, but I think ultimately the battle between good and evil is weighed within the individual human heart, and not necessarily between an army of people dressed in white and an army of people dressed in black. When I look at the world, I see that most real, living, breathing human beings are gray. He's not the only one to suggest that Tolkien's moral vision is simplistic. Someone else who very famously objected to it was uh, an author named Michael Moorcock, also a fantasy writer, not as famous as Tolkien, 
but certainly very well known within uh, the ranks of writers of serious speculative fiction. He says that he calls it famously uh, epic poo, considering Tolkien's vision of the chaos of the world to be infantile. He and some others like him, for example, in a 1971 essay in the magazine New Worlds, the writer M. John Harrison acknowledges Tolkien's position as the first and last word in fantastic fiction, but he begs readers to look more closely, where they will see not, quote, the beautiful chaos of reality, but, quote, the stability and comfort and safe safeness of catharsis. And this was supposed to be a negative thing. Um, personally, I much prefer the stability and comfort of safe catharsis in my reading, as opposed to the beautiful chaos of reality, assuming that the chaos of reality is beautiful, which seems to me, especially now, to be a bit of a silly thing to say. In 1978, Moorcock did a more thorough takedown in an essay called Epic Pooh, in which he compares Tolkien and his hobbits to A.A. A. Milne and his bear. So this is how serious writers of fantasy fiction, especially of the postmodern variety, tend to look at the sincere heroism exhibited in books like The Lord of the Rings, but really what they object to is the whole idea of the hero's journey as it is traditionally represented in both fairy tales and myths and many modern fantasy novels. Instead, what they suggest, these writers, is that it's an unrealistic vision of the world and we should be preparing people, or rather we should allow people to, to have to read books that are more accurately reflective of the reality that we live in. And that reality, they say, is the, the um, beautiful chaos of reality. Now, let's examine whether or not that is actually true. And the way I'm going to do that is by offering you a few examples of speculative fiction media that comes specifically from this kind of worldview. Books and movies that are created very much by authors and filmmakers that would agree i get i would guess based on the the feeling and the tenor of their of their work with not not tolkien's view of the of the heroic quest but with uh, michael moorcock's and uh, m john harrison's vision of the beautiful chaos of reality and i wanted to specifically talk about the movie the green knight the reason i wanted to talk about it is partially because we just we finished reading the original um, anglo-saxon sorry the middle english poem uh, the green knight in my patreon's book club this would, would have been probably already half a year ago or so and from that uh, book club we had a lot of interesting conversations and um, we all realized together that what was one of the more beautiful things about the poem is that even as it was written in the in the late 14th, early 15th century, if I, if I have my dates right, I, I might have them wrong, I don't remember off the top of my head, it was already intended by the author to have a certain sense of old-fashioned nostalgia, in a lot of ways similar to what The Lord of the Rings does. This was a point made by J.R.R. Tolkien in the, in the introduction to his translation of The Green Knight. So the original poem though written in the Middle Ages, would have sounded to readers of that time slightly old-fashioned, and the readers would have liked it for that specific reason. In fact, it's one of the reasons why it continues to be uh, well-known even in our time, because it has this nostalgic vision of the past that doesn't embrace the, quote, beautiful chaos of reality, but rather uh, embraces 
a an idea of pleasant catharsis, something that Tolkien, by the way, talks about a lot in his essay on fairy stories, as we have already mentioned on this podcast. So when I started watching the movie The Green Knight, I prepared myself in advance by reading about it a little bit, and I knew that the experience of watching the movie was not going to be anything like the experience of reading the story, uh, because the story is purposely old-fashioned, and the movie is purposely newfangled. And that becomes very, very clear from the very first scene. In spite of the fact that you have uh, very medieval uh, type um, on the screen in large, extremely overwhelming size on the on the uh, on the movie screen in front of you, the the main character who is not a knight, Gawain is not a sir in this version of the story, wakes up on Christmas morning in the brothel of his favorite um, whore. Excuse me for my language. And the first line of dialogue is a blasphemous um, conversation between Essel, the uh, the prostitute, and Gawain, um, where they <laughs> basically mock the traditional greeting, uh, Christian greeting, for Christmas morning. And we already know at that moment that we are not in Kansas anymore, but this Kansas is not the kind of Kansas that you would expect medieval England to be. This is a very postmodern vision of it, and it's quite self-referentially so, and if you accept it from the very beginning, you know where you stand, and it makes for a rather interesting viewing experience. So you know that Gawain, in every possible way, is going to be an, a non-hero. He's not even an anti-hero. Anti-hero is, by the way, a subject which is very interesting and will be the subject of another a podcast episode, hopefully sometime in the future. But he's a non-hero. He does nothing heroic, and uh, although he does pine for a kind of heroism. So when the chance comes to par- participate in the very strange Christmas game offered by the Green Knight, which in its form differs very, very seriously from the way it is presented in the story, in the book, uh, Gawain kind of flat-footedly lumbers into a situation where he doesn't know what to do and ends up making a fool of himself. And that becomes a theme for the rest of the story. He immediately goes out as as a knight errant on on a journey to, not immediately, a year later, on a journey to encounter his destiny because he has promised to go and be dealt the same blow uh, that he dealt to the Green Knight. And immediately he encounters in a field of uh, slain warriors after a battle, a character um, played by the very wonderful actor Barry Keegan, um, who is asking him for money. And uh, Gawain doesn't understand the rules of the game. He thinks he's now on a heroic journey. He doesn't realize that he is on an anti-heroic journey, as described by a a filmmaker in David Lowry who does not uh, subscribe to the idea that the traditional hero's journey is something that should be emulated in his art, but rather something that should be lampooned or rather uh, critiqued. Uh, Maybe not lampooned. That's, That's perhaps not fair. So when he tries to interact with this lower sort, so to speak, uh, a uh, a peasant boy, he is immediately taken advantage of, and the, basically the implication is that since he acts like a traditional hero, he's easy to take advantage of and immediately gets robbed. And according to the inter- interpretation of some movie critics, uh, including Alyssa Wilkinson, actually he dies, and the rest of the movie is, a, is an exploration of the legend of uh, Sir Gawain that never happened because he died before he was able to reach uh, the Green Chapel or the Chapel Perilous. This new vision of heroism 
is one very much in line with the beautiful chaos of reality. It's one very much in line with the difficult reality that we encounter in the news every day. The one that eschews the very idea of there being any sort of traditional, hero, traditional heroism. Um, we are told this very often now, that, that every hero has an ulterior motive. And that's certainly what the David Lowry seems to be implying in the way that the book, the way that the movie goes. Now, this vision of heroism continues and it becomes more and more strange. Because at a certain point, what Gawain does is he uh, ingests psychedelic mushrooms accidentally. He doesn't know that's what he's doing. And when that scene happened, a very interesting thing happened in the movie. First of all, uh, there's a shot where the camera eye view shifts 180 degrees, suggesting to the viewer of the film that now we are in a an upside-down reality, a reality that is not real, but is conditioned by Gawain ingesting psychedelic mushrooms, which might, by the way, have killed him. This may be another scene of death. Whether we whether that is the case or not, we don't really know. This book does this movie does not allow for <laughs> for very tidy interpretations. But in any case, as soon as he enters the second half of the of the movie after having ingested the psychedelic mushroom, very strange things begin to happen. He encounters a, a castle in the middle of the forest where he's taken in by a lord and his lady. And there's a very interesting conversation that happens um, between the three of them, where the lady lets us know about the reality of what the Green Knight and the world of the Green actually is. The significance of this state of affairs, as quoted in a wonderful article by Stephen Gray Danis on decentfilms.com, uh, is explicitly laid out in the monologue regarding the color green. The reflections on the significance of green come from Bertilek's wife, the lady who in the poem's most important test sequence repeatedly tries to seduce Gawain, unsuccessfully in the story and successfully to a certain degree in the movie, in a very strange and, un and unpleasant scene. Here she is played by Alicia Vikander in a double role. Uh, Alicia Vikander also plays the prostitute, and it's presumably intended to enhance her connection with Gawain. Green, according to this monologue, represents the inexorable forces of the natural world working against the human world. Growth and decay constantly eating away at human achievements and human bodies. Resist it how, it, resist it how they may. Quote, she says, pull it out by the roots one day, and the next there it is, creeping in around the edges. Where you go, your footprints will fill with grass. Moss shall cover your tombstone, and as the sun rises, green shall spread over all. This verdigree will overtake your swords and your coins and your battlements, and try as you might, all you hold dear will succumb to it, your skin, your bones, your virtue. This speech describes the reality we find at the Green Chapel, an edifice once dedicated to the worship of the Christian God, now a monument to the irresistible power of the green world to spread over all. It contextualizes the skeleton motif running through the film, and ultimately shapes the meaning of the ambiguous final scene. The final scene, though ambiguous, is described by Gray Danis in a very compelling way, at least to me. Basically what happens is that there's this dream sequence in which uh, an extended dream sequence after Gawain runs away from the Green Knight, which doesn't happen in the poem, where he becomes the heir of Arthur and everything goes wrong and eventually he is uh, basically abandoned by the magic given to him by his mother, his head falls off and everything is terrible and awful and the dream of Camelot uh, 
is dust overtaken by enemies and eventually to be overtaken by the green as as the implication is as all human uh fates must be as all human heroism must give way to the ultimate reality of the rot of the nat the natural green coming in and eating everything and so when we finally encounter the last scene where Gawain comes back or doesn't leave, it's unclear, and accepts his test on the hands at the hands of the uh, Green Knight, the Green Knight comes down to his level, he's a very tall character, and congratulates him and then says a very interesting thing. Interesting thing. He says, you are now my knight. And as uh, Stephen Gray Danis makes uh, this point, he says that this means that what Gawain has done effectively is accept the reality that all human heroism is ultimately leading to the grave, is ultimately useless. In fact, all human fates in general are useless. And the inevitable result of all human endeavors is death. But it is not a dark death from the perspective of the green. It is a death, a post-human reality in which nature is allowed to flourish without the blight of human existence on its face. Really disturbing, if you look at it from that perspective. And it really turned me off as I realized what it was that I was watching. But then I started to notice something. It wasn't by accident and it wasn't a simply an fu kind of moment from David Lowry to the to the viewer who might have expected a tidy ending a la the hero's journey i think something very profound is going on here because what this is is a secular apocalypse apocalypse meaning revelation it is a secular apocalypse in the sense that it reveals what the underlying worldview of those who do not approve of the morally simplistic, quote-unquote, vision of J.R.R. Tolkien, they have not much of a better future to offer than Tolkien does. Their future is one that is post-human. That certainly seems to me to be the case. Now, if you think that I'm exaggerating based on a single movie that is, I agree, capable of many different interpretations... It's a very odd movie, very beautiful movie, very interesting movie, and I certainly do recommend that you watch it, at least for the experience of, of seeing something quite beautifully made, even if ambiguous in the final analysis. But I started to notice it in other places, in particular in a novel uh, called The Gone World by Tom Swetterlish. Now, it's a, The Gone World is a fantastic, fantastic novel. It is very dark. I don't recommend it to everybody. But um, for those who have the stomach for some pretty awful violence, and some very tragic human reality. Uh, it, it is a very interesting and fascinating novel. In The Gone World, Tom Swetterlish introduces an ambitious investigation, one that jumps back and forth in time. By the way, I'm here, I'm quoting from a review in The Verge. I will include the quote, uh, the uh, review in the show notes. This investigation jumps back and forth in time and it could decide the fate of humanity. It's a complicating, complicated, dazzling novel that keeps the reader hooked until the last pages. It certainly is that. The Gone World opens the 20th century NCIS agent named Shannon Moss on a training mission in the distant future of 2199. She's part of the Naval Space Command, which runs a covert space and time-traveling program that sends Navy personnel across the galaxy and across time. 
On her first mission, she discovers a horrifying scene, a version of herself crucified mid-air in a broken wasteland. She's witnessing what her agency calls the Terminus, a mysterious phenomenon which signals an apocalypse that appears to be moving closer and closer to the present. After her training, she's called to investigate a brutal murder in her present, 1997. And from then on, everything she learns leads the Terminus closer and closer to her present reality and more and more reveals what the, what the writer seems to be saying about humanity in reference to this bizarre and very disturbing phenomenon called the Terminus. Now, we know that we are in something that's much more than a um, speculative police procedural when one of the characters, uh, the love interest for Shannon Moss, uh, is encountered in a cabin in the woods this character, by the way, is a lapsed um, a Christian, which is an important point for the for the uh, story. In and in this uh, hut that he lives in, we see the painting of Hans Holbein's uh, Christ in the tomb. In the tomb. Now, those of you who know classic literature will immediately have their antenna go up because this is the painting that is repeatedly referred to in uh, Dostoevsky's *The Idiot* as proof of the fact that. Christ could not have resurrected. Because if anybody looks at that painting of the dead Christ in the tomb, he could not possibly believe in the in the he could not possibly believe in the possibility of a resurrection because the presence of death is so overwhelming in that painting. It's a point that keeps that is made repeatedly in the novel. It's something that uh it's a very beautiful philosophical moment that recurs in different ways in Dostoevsky's fiction. So when it appears in this otherwise uh, very genre book, you, you understand that this is something that's important. And in it, we eventually encounter this very interesting reality. And that is that in a world where one is forced to embrace the beautiful chaos of reality, quote unquote, the formerly Christian character, when faced with the terminus, and the terminus is most likely an alien phenomenon, but it is an alien phenomenon that doesn't seem to have uh, sentience. It seems to be the kind of inexorable force of the green as we encounter in The Green Knight. It is nature at its most predatory, in its most predatory self. Nature, uh, a natural phenomenon that is above the food chain, above humanity in the food chain, so to speak. And it doesn't seem to to have any sort of demonic or... or um, insidious uh, designs on humanity, even though it does feel that way uh, throughout the novel. So what does this character, who is a very accurate representation of sort of uh, your regular Joe American, most of whom are sort of Midwestern Joe American who, who is faintly Christian or grew up faintly Christian, he begins to worship the phenomenon. He hates it. But since it is the in inexorable and inevitable, inevitable reality, it is the beautiful chaos of reality, his worldview doesn't allow for him to see it as anything else other than God. And he worships it. But he worships it while hating it. And in a very awful sequence of events, it ends, uh, it ends up forcing him to um, betray Shannon Moss in a way that is unexpected and, and quite gut-wrenching and awful in the novel. Um, again, those of you who, who have weak stomachs, do not read this book. Those of you who are slightly little stronger in it and can appreciate the, the important things that such novels are telling us, I do recommend that you read it. Again, what, what's my point here? My point is that these this is very much a, a secular apocalypse. And again, just like The Green Knight, this 
book, as well as other secular apocalypses, such as um, that uh, Station Eleven, which I read and I hated, but it's a very much of the same ilk. It's a very well written novel, certainly worthy of all the accolades that it got. My my hatred for it is is personal, <laughs> not critical. Uh, all of these seem to be saying something, not very loudly, and not by declaring it, but by suggestion. Something about the inevitability of the worldview of those who embrace the Michael Moorcock kind of vision of heroism. The heroism that does not like to have the possibility for morally simplistic, infantile, heroic journeys. They All these stories inevitably reveal something about the way they see the world. The way they see the world is that it is ultimately irredeemable. It is ultimately dark. It is ultimately inevitable that the green post-human reality will come. And all of them seem to be okay with that fact. All of them seem to, on some level, lament the loss of humanity. But on another level, they seem to be okay with it because of the suffering of Mother Earth. And because we are a blight, like I said, on the face of the planet, and let the planet survive without us. This is a very distressing, to me, and a disturbing turn of events when I realize that this is really the underlying worldview of a lot of people who object to the traditional heroic quest as a trope for reading, but also as a trope for living. As I've repeatedly suggested and said to you all in, in this uh, podcast, and I will continue to, I'm not the only one to believe that there is something not simply therapeutic, not simply cathartic, but formational about reading the kinds of morally simplistic stories, according to Michael Moorcock, etc., that Tolkien and others of his ilk wrote, because they help make our hearts whole. And rather than helping us embrace a kind of beautiful chaos of reality, whatever that is. I don't see anything beautiful in the chaos of reality outside my door. Instead, what these stories are actually doing is suggesting that perhaps it's better if you simply die. So, what's the conclusion? Pay attention. Read. Do read these secular post-apocalyptic stories. They're extremely honest in what they are trying to tell you. They're much more honest than a lot of faith-based fiction, which tends to ignore the difficult realities of everyday life, especially nowadays. Now, once you've read these stories, run the other way. <laughs> and then read The Lord of the Rings for the 20th time. Because that is what's going to be better for your heart, ultimately. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.